let's go back now to the book of Revelation. Um, in case I forget to tell you, we're going to skip back a few pages to Hebrews 2 next week as we kind of continue this thought on the glory and honor that's due the Lord. But today we're going to take another look at the throne room of heaven. Now, um, a lot of religious beliefs feature a strong sense of destiny, of divine control. You're going to hear uh, graduation speeches for the next month where they'll talk about God's guidance, hopefully. But in the Greek mythological world of Mount Olympus, uh, which would have been familiar to those who first read the book of Revelation, um, uh, this kind of idea of, of providence or divine control was uh, typified or described by um, and, and personified in some ways by the three goddesses, what they called the three goddesses of fate. There was one who spun the thread of life, one who cuts the thread of life at the time of death, and one who allots the number of life's days. Now, isn't that interesting? They kind of had three different gods to figure out when your life starts, when your life ends, and what, how many days are in between. Three different goddesses that they kind of celebrated. Um, the Greeks and the Romans also believed in a, in a goddess called Fortuna. Fortuna, and you can kind of understand uh, that reference. She was the goddess who determined a person's destiny or whether they were, their life was going to be prosperous or disastrous. That was Fortuna. Now, the Bible doesn't look that way at these things at all, even though they're important. The Bible presents God as sovereign. He declares in places like Isaiah 46, my purpose will stand and I'll do all that I please. God's plans won't be thwarted. He has the power to carry out his will in all things. But unlike the capricious and unpredictable actions of goddesses uh, of fate or fortuna, the, Lord will, the Lord's will works with our will for God's desired outcomes. And it's going to be consistent with his unchanging nature. Now let's rewind the clock just a little bit. Uh, today we're going to take another look. You remember last week we looked at the throne room of heaven. Someone was sitting on the throne. You remember the images we looked at? The, the, uh, the all-powerful, almighty sitting on the throne. Uh, he was surrounded by subordinate thrones. How many of them? Actually, 24. Uh, there were 24 Um uh, but you remember there were 12, we thought maybe from the Old Testament, 12 representing the New Testament on there. What else? Who else was there? You remember the four living creatures? The kind of hideous? You know, they had uh, lots of wings, lots of eyes, you know. Uh, we talked about what all that meant. Um, do you remember what they were doing? Praising, they were actually leading praise, leading worship in heaven. They were kind of the heavenly worship leaders. Okay, so that's kind of where we um, ended last time. The living creatures who lead worship and the elders who bow in worship. And the chapter ends with a song praising the worthiness of the Lord God to receive that worship. This is based on God's being the one who created and sustains all things. 
But chapter 5 is going to begin with the new detail. The hand of the one seated on the throne, and we believe that's God the Father, is, um, has in his hand an unusual scroll. And we're going to talk about it being unusual for two reasons. As you look at the first four or five verses of chapter 5. First, it has writing on both sides, which is not a standard practice. In fact, from what I understand, uh, the uh, vellum that was used uh, to, uh, to comprise a scroll had kind of a clean side. And then since it was made out of animal skin, it also had... Uh, uh, what you you and I might call the flesh side, and then the hair side. And they didn't write on the hair side. But these scrolls are written on both sides, so that's kind of unusual. And secondly, the scroll has seven seals instead of just one wax seal. It's got seven. And the Bible tells us in the early verses of, of chapter 5 that we're going to be into today that they can be broken only by one who has the proper authority. Now, a new character is going to walk into the throne room. After a thorough search ensues of someone who can open the scrolls. John, look at verse 4, chapter 5. John literally, as there's this search going on in heaven, who is worthy? Who can open the book? What's John's reaction, verse 4? He weeps. He cries. It's sad to him. He wants. There's this dilemma uh, there um, that, that John is is disturbed by. Something seems wrong in heaven, and John's sadness kind of overwhelms him. Now you and I get to read the rest of the story, and it's beautiful. Let's start if we can. Steve, would you mind to read today? And I want you to go to verse six and read six, seven, and eight to start us. Really a beautiful scene. Uh, Miss Sally, can I get you to go to John 1? And I want you to read in just a minute verse 29 and verse 36. It should be on the same page. Just 29 and 36. We'll get to it in just a second. Now, um, uh, there's a new figure in heaven. A newcomer to the scene for us. He's not new to heaven, but he's new to us. All right? All uh, right. As he's described here in Revelation 5, um, we recognize two things, that he's a lamb, okay? It's a lamb. We'll look at the detail on that lamb in just a minute. I would submit to you that this is the lamb that they've been looking for. This is the lamb who um, uh, enters the throne room, and this is the lamb that John was identifying at the beginning of his gospel. We've been in John's gospel for a while uh, at Jesus' baptism, in that scenario, John twice identifies Jesus. Uh, Sally, read, if you would, 
verse, um, what did I say, 29, and then I also want you to read verse 36. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. John says that. Now, by the way, fast forward to Revelation 5. John is right. This is John who wrote also the gospel in which this is, is recorded. John says, there's one like a lamb. Interesting, right? Look at verse 36. John the Baptist says this again. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. Okay, so, fast forward now to Revelation 5. There's a new figure in heaven. It's a lamb. A lamb represents, certainly from the Old Testament to the New Testament, a sacrificial animal. John the Baptist, when he sees him, recognizes him as the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. He takes away our sins through his sacrifice. This is predictive, but it's also just kind of a wonderful observation. Um, in verse 5 here, the first part of 5 identifies him. Um, go, go back to 5.5. Five. Um, one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that's from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so has opened the book and his seven seals. Now, what I got to say to you about this is um, Jesus is identified at different places in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, here as the lamb, but he's also identified as the lion. There's a new worship song that I'm really enjoying. They sing it in, in our chapel services at school, and, and I think we see it sing it some here. Called the Lion and the Lamb. Anybody heard it? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah, and he talks about him fighting our battles. But our God is also the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain. See the picture from here? Uh, he's the one that makes it possible for us. His sacrifice saves us. So there's this picture in heaven of the lion and the lamb embodied in this picture of a lamb here um, entering the throne room. Okay, second thing then, um, he appears, and this is an interesting word because he walks in, but he appears to have been slain. He is wounded, and I, I don't want you to say, He's, he's uh, it's not just a scratch. The idea is he is wounded unto death. That There's the picture there. It appears to John as he sees this that the lamb who enters the throne room is wounded, a death wound, a fatal wound, but he's alive again. Who does that sound like? Kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? The lamb who was slain has walked into the throne room. Now, he's going to do something that's really bold in verse 7. What is it? He walks right up to the throne of God. By the way, don't try that. I, I'm not thinking that'll go real well, but okay, maybe it will. He walks up to the throne room into the throne room, right up to the throne, and takes the book. Remember this is the book that they're crying over? 
John's crying over because there's no one worthy to open it. This is a dramatic scene here. He approaches the throne and takes the book. This is audacious. The word that I wanted to go in your line there is bold. And I want to say this to you. As heaven has been searching for the right one to take the book and to open the book, what you and I have got to infer from verse, um, uh, verse 7 here is that the search throughout heaven is over. The one who needs the book, who has the ability, who has the worthiness to take the book, has been found. He walks in. Now look at verse 8. At this transfer, so God the Father is holding this book, written on both sides. At the transfer of the book from the Father sitting on the throne to the Lamb, who has just entered the throne room, the characters that we started with talking about today and that we talked about last week, the four and 20 elders and the uh, four creatures, they do something. What do they do? Say it again, Janet. They bow and begin to sing. Remember, they bowed in chapter four. They fell. They did this again. And they're singing. Um, they bowed this time, and we'll get into this in a minute, uh, the, the uh, significance of this. This time in chapter 5, they bowed before whom? The Lamb. That's significant. We'll deal with it all through today, but certainly uh, significant here. This is a recognition of authority, okay? He has the ability, the, the power, the, the rightness, the authority. He's worthy to take the book. And, and the 24 elders are saying, oh, wow. There he is. And the four creatures begin to sing again. We'll talk about their song in a minute. But not only does this act of worship signify power and authority, but it also signifies unity that they recognize. Remember, we ended last time talking about there is only one worthy of our worship. They recognize that this one, the lamb who was slain, is equivalent to the one sitting on the throne. There is a unity there. They're different yet the same. That's part of good theology, the Holy Trinity, which is kind of hard to understand sometimes. But there's this picture of heaven that God the Father and God the Son are one, both worthy of worship. We'll deal with that in just a minute. Now, Steve, since I missed you for a week or two, I'm going I'm to come back to you and ask you to read verse 9 and 10. And I want you to do this, put your hand over your ear. I want you to do this in your best baritone voice. Okay? Oh, and he's got a cough now. Okay. This is beautiful. You, you got to help me catch it with you. I need somebody to go to 
John 20, and we're going to read verse 27 and 28. We read this a couple weeks ago, but we need to again. Cindy, thank you. Okay, uh, we'll do that in just a minute. Now, catch this. There is a new song being sung in heaven. Um, this is not an old favorite. <laughs> they're not saying just a little talk with Jesus. Oh, you know, they're not singing... Uh, you know, they're not singing, put your snout under the spout where the gospel comes out. Some old song. They're... You don't sing that one. It's a new song. It's a new song. By the way, I can't sing that one, so don't beg me, okay? I don't. I, 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 neither can I sing, there's no flies on my Jesus. But actually, that one includes the word ain't. I think it's. There ain't no flies on my Jesus. And they sing that in Kentucky, Jerry, I tell you. Okay? All right. Uh, all right. But this is not an old song. It's a brand new song. With kind of a brand new subject. Appropriate. And certainly, uh, it, it's appropriate for the moment. Uh, the words are words of praise, again. But to whom? Not to the one that sits on the throne, but to the Lamb. Cindy, let me set the, the stage here just for a second. It's after the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the disciples have gathered a couple of times in the upper room. Uh, Jesus appeared to them. He doesn't need doors. He just walks in. Okay? He just appears. Uh, the first Sunday, Thomas was not there. My mom used to say, don't miss church, you're going to miss something. Okay, wow, did he miss it, right? So this is the eighth day. This is the second Sunday, the Sunday after Easter. Thomas is there, and Jesus seeks him out. Now, I want you to hear the exchange as Jesus acknowledges Thomas's doubt and speaks to it. Okay, Cindy, read if you would verse twenty. What did I say? Twenty-seven and twenty-eight. What did he invite Thomas to do? To do what nobody's allowed to do. In fact, there were some to whom he said, don't touch me. But Thomas said, I want you to touch this. You got some doubt. Let's deal with your doubt. Now notice in verse 28 that Cindy read, Thomas's response, what was it? My Lord, my God. Ellie, we have an ongoing conversation about what occurs on A&E and on the uh, History Channel. Often, if you're, if you're watching some um, Nat Geo thing on the Bible, it will tell you that according to the latest and greatest scholars, Jesus never thought he was God. That was something that the disciples came up with long after he was gone. Thomas bows and worships in John 20, verse 28. 
He says, my Lord and what? My God. Do you notice, and I don't think this is an omission here by the evangelist John. You notice Jesus doesn't push, push back and say, oh no, don't, don't worship me. You catch that? Thomas declares Jesus to be God. He bows in praise of him here. And Jesus says, no, don't, don't get up. No, no, he doesn't say that, does he? Why? Because he is worthy of worship. Certainly in his post-resurrection state. And he is God. And Ellie, he knew it. Interesting, isn't it? That there's lots of detail here if you mine for it. Okay, so... There's now a new song being sung in heaven, and it's being sung to Jesus. This is not an old song. This is a new song, even though he's not new to them. And notice also that as they proclaim this, they talk about the number of people, the, the different groups of people that will be included in this salvation. And it's talking about tribes and nations and tongues from all over. If we took the time, we could find people here, Mike from Alabama. Oneana? Sorry, man. I, I, I hurt your feelings right there. I'm sorry. We could find people from uh, other countries in here. We might find a lady in pink from Marlowe. Might. Not just people in heaven like us, but from all over the place. And they join in the new song. Catch that? It's just kind of beautiful. All right, now, let me go on. So verse 10, uh, believers here then are given according to the words of the song, that believers here are given a kind of a unique uh, uh, job to do uh, when, when, the, um, when the, as these creatures are singing, you have made them, that's us, to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, I put some references there because there's not only a reference in Peter's, uh, one of Peter's letters to us being kings and priests, but there's also one from Exodus 19. So this is not a new thought. Because of the Lamb, we reign as kings and priests. And because we are, um, because we are seen as priests here, as priests, we're to go forth with the gospel, the good news. An amazing, humbling responsibility, by the way. That's what goes in your blank. And our job with handling the gospel, the good news, the message of heaven, is to expand the kingdom while we're here on the earth. To make this place that's being, being uh, celebrated here, in which it's being celebrated, and the people there, to expand that. To make it even bigger. Now we're going to look at how big this is. Go to verse 11. Somebody read um, Revelation 5 and start with verse 11 and read down through 14. A continuation of the song.
This isn't it beautiful? Now we're going to look at here the second stanza of the song. Okay, the second stanza. They've already sung one. We're going to sing another one. Okay, and as they do so, we learn some stuff. Um, one of the things is that he looks. John looks around him, and there are just a lot of people there. And he uses two references here. He uses thousands of thousands. So if it was just a thousand thousands, that's a million. That's a lot. Imagine that. A million people in one room. That'd be kind of interesting. And then he, he says, no, 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 that's, enough. that's not enough. And so he says, 10,000 times 10,000. Now, I don't have Fred here to help me today, but I think that's 100 million. I think. A lot of folks. And we'll gather in one place. What you need to catch here is that John is not really counting. He's not saying one, two, wait a minute, I lost my count, let me go back. Uh, no. He's just saying, th this is a vast group. Um, if you transliterate the word in Greek that is used here to describe this multitude around the throne singing the new song that the, that the four uh, worship leaders are leading and that the 24 elders are bowing to and joining in the song. If you transliterate the word from the Greek, it's the word myriad. 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 Which means to us what? Vast. What? A whole bunch. I mean, in 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 uh, in uh, in Oklahoma parlance, a bunch, yeah, a bunch. That's the scene. All of these people joining in the song in John's vision, and they begin to sing about the Lamb. They sing to the Lamb and about the Lamb again, beginning in verse twelve. Okay, so they're they've sung about God. They're also singing about the Lamb. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, let me take apart those seven things just really quick. Seven attributes are celebrated, okay? Power, which is ability. This is why he was, part of why he receives uh, uh, this praise, because of his power, his ability. Wealth, because of his riches. Wisdom. What you and I need to understand here is not just knowledge, it's knowledge applied. It's, it's um, what, what I wrote in my notes as um, situational intelligence. He knows what to do when. Daniel Goldman would call part of it emotional intelligence, included with book learning, okay? Wisdom. Strength, which is might. Again, the idea of power. Honor, which would be esteem. Glory, which would be splendor. Um, you guys got your DVR set for the big wedding coming up in England? Okay, I, I, Ellie, I figured you did. Uh, you will see some splendor that day. No? What's, oh, no. Thank you, Joe. But you'll see some. When you see that, think... Wow, this, is, this doesn't hold a candle to what we're looking at in, verse five, in chapter 5. So splendor, or honor, or glory, I'm sorry, and splendor. The last one is praise, which is this idea of acknowledgement. Every possible qualification for worthiness is rehearsed in this song. It's delineated. 
in this song and in, in praise to the Lamb, to the Son. Now, notice in verse 13, who is included? Who gets to join the song? What do you think? Everyone. All creation. And it really gives us a kind of interesting description. You catch this? Heaven? Yeah, but under the earth? Earth? Okay. It reminds me of what Paul talks about in Philippians 2 when he says, in that day, everyone, all, will give him praise. Because of what he has done and because of who he is, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, every living creature will offer praise to the Lamb. Uh, the idea here is um, no one's left out. There's, there's no, there will be, okay, stay with me here, no protesters. You can't do a, a perfect thing these days without 100 protesters with signs showing up. No protesters. Imagine that. There won't be somebody saying, not me. You know the little sign? No protesters. Nobody excluded. No holdouts. And they're all praising the same one. The Lamb. I kind of want to be part of that crowd, don't you? Okay. My sanctified imagination. I'm sitting on the patio this morning, spiffing this up one more time. And I started thinking... I don't like this thought, by the way. I, I hate this thought, but I got I to gotta deem it may be true. Do you think snakes will clap? <laughs> they don't have hands. But in my crazy little sanctified imagination, I thought, what will a snake do? I, I guess they'll sing. Maybe they'll come up with hands and clap. I don't, I don't know. You know? I don't like that thought because I don't care for snakes and don't put one in my chair. Okay? Every, what? what? Well, maybe they wiggle their tail in time with the music. Yeah, okay. Uh, but they'll be there. I mean, all creatures will praise him from all time. I want you to think about those who hold out now who will not be able to hold out then. I want you to think about those now who, um, who will uh, be wanting to protest when the church gets together. There won't be any of that there. Singular purpose, singular focus, all people, all time, even those who don't want to. Wow. So, the last verse Steve read, shows the original four worship leaders returning. There's Larry and Josh and Don and Cole. Okay? I don't tell them we think they look like that because we know them. But, you know, our worship leaders, they return. And what do they do? And they say something. What do they say? What a word. You know, um, service started last week with a song, with a spiritual 
amen in, in the sanctuary. What does it mean? It is a word of praise, but it's a word of acknowledgement in some ways. Do what? Well, certainly it could mean it has to do with this is what time immemorial is headed toward. We're in that moment. It literally means something like, so be it. I agree. Maybe a little bit of wow mixed in. Hey. You know, the idea is they have to stop the song for a minute and say, wow. Or maybe, maybe it's the 12-fold amen toward the end of Handel's Messiah that they say amen to. Maybe it's this spiritual that we heard last week, but they stop and say, oh, so be it. This is what we've looked for for eternity. You know, and we get to be a part of that scenario. Now, here's what I got to say as we close up. I, I, I stepped over the line a little bit last week, but okay, I'm coming back on this side of the line. May glory only be given now as it will be then to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That's what it says here. Okay, and we had, I had this little venture into... Uh, you know, place I shouldn't go We're talking about applause in church, okay? But may now it be as it will be then that only, okay, the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb be given the only glory, the only praise. The one who sits on the throne, God the Father, the sustainer, the great I am. God the Lamb, the creator who was slain, now living again, the redeemer. May my praise today be to those to whom praise is given for eternity in heaven that we get to see the picture of. To the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb who was slain. If you like music, just Google sometime today or YouTube, whatever, however you do it. Uh, anybody do Spotify? Oh, okay. We've got, we've got lots of hip people in here. All right. Google worthy is the lamb and you'll find a thousand different things of it. Okay. One of my favorites is the Gaither vocal band doing, uh, doing a, a Gaither setting of it, but that's not necessarily the best one. In fact, uh, if, if you are a, um, a Baroque music fan, as I am, and you hear uh, toward the end of Handel's Messiah, some huge chorus and orchestra singing. Uh, it's interesting because if you think Baroque music is not affectionate, this really is. Because the beginning of the song is the word worthy, and it's like at 95 decibels. I mean, it's worthy. Get your attention. Find something today to, li to listen to these words being sung. Worthy is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world.